According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The scripture that I cite is not just a <clears throat> mindless ritual in some way to start a Bible class, but a reminder that although we live in this world, we're not living for this world. <clears throat> that he has made promises. He is faithful to fulfill those promises. We may lose track of time because we're creatures of time bound by time, but we cannot fail to recognize that day by day his plan is going forth and we are one day closer today than we were yesterday. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so this is the day-by-day Christian walk that we are commanded to live in the unfolding of the dispensation of the church. Also, a verse I tend not to cite, in this same context, says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. A great snare in the Christian way of life, of course, is getting away from truth, getting away from teaching, and falling for the false teaching that's out there. All right, all that being said, let's take time for silent prayer to set aside distractions, concentrate upon the Word of God, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and for the faithfulness you exhibit in our lives day by day, for the faithfulness that you manifest. And Father, we do ask that all things might be done in an orderly manner, all things might be done for the glory of Jesus Christ, all things might be done for your good pleasure, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, Luke chapter 2 then, returning back to our study on the proclamation by the angels. Luke 2, 8-14. Luke chapter 2, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men of good pleasure. Then verse 15, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, and so forth, the shepherds take action. And we will deal with some of those things here shortly as well. We uh, left off last week by examining the angelic message, which was point three in the outline. Point one, the shepherds were staying out in the fields and we dealt with them as being full-time shepherds, that this was their living arrangement and, and did some of the history and some of the uh, geography studies there. We also examined that it was an angel, not the angel of the Lord. Very important that we recognize that. The angel of the Lord makes no more appearances with the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin. The angel of the Lord was, a, was an Old Testament pre-incarnation Christophany, the form that God the Son took most frequently in Old Testament revelations. But the angel of the Lord does not reappear in the New Testament following the uh, virgin birth or even the virgin conception of Christ in the womb. Uh, the angel of the Lord, or an angel of the Lord, suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And we focused just briefly on the prepositions involved, the difference between before and around. The chorus is not yet visible to them, and yet the glory emanates. And uh, so we, I think, commented briefly on that. 
so much of what occurs in the spiritual realm is not observable directly. Um, even when Christ was teaching with respect to the Holy Spirit, and uh, we can we can feel the wind, we we can feel its effects, but we don't exactly know where it's coming from or what makes the wind blow, or we can't see it and that kind of thing. Quite often, when when we touch upon the angelic realm, we do have a sense of angelic uh, involvement, nearness, participation, and so forth, even though we cannot directly see it or totally understand what is happening when it's happening. People have made comments at different times about uh, dangerous uh, experiences that they've had or near misses and certain things, and they felt somehow that an angel had saved them or had steered their car or had pulled them back from a cliff or, or something. And, and these aren't people that are, you know, real quick to start sensationalizing things or real quick to start, you know, talking about extra human experiences and things. They're not sensationalists by any stretch. And yet the descriptions I, I find to be rather similar as people struggle to put into words the feeling or the sense uh, of of uh, witnessing an angelic experience. And, and so I find that interesting. It's, it's consistent with the biblical description. It's <clears throat> consistent with what we see here. Glory that is around them and yet not completely manifest until such time as the choir makes its appearance in verses 13 and 14. And we'll be, <clears throat> we'll be dealing with that here this morning at some, with some detail. <clears throat> then point three, the angel's message. And I think this is where we really want to focus. The content of the message is always paramount, always more important than the miracle, always more important than the event, is what is being communicated. What is the content of what is being communicated? And that's what we see here. And we took some time to break it down because the content is not Messiah is here. The content is a Savior is here who is Messiah. And, uh, of course, the Jewish patriotism and the Jewish pride uh, anticipates the coming Messiah and has come to understand Messiah in certain terms. Strictly speaking, they've come to accept Messiah in Jewish terms. And they have Jewish expectations for this Jewish Messiah. I find that remarkable that when the seed of the woman was being... Um, revealed and being being promised and then being narrowed. And we've taken you through this many, many times. I hope I've taken you through it enough to where you can do it yourself, where you can think your way through the Scriptures yourself and realize that, that Shem narrows the scope for the seed of the woman to one-third of the human race. And we have excluded now Ham and Japheth as we focus on the coming Messiah. And then Abraham further focuses the line of Shem. We're not just looking for any Semitic people. We're not looking for any Shemites because even the Assyrians were Shemites and, and Asher was uh, a son of Shem. And we might look to the Assyrians to find the Christ if we didn't have it furthermore narrowed to Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. We have further narrowing. We're not just looking at all the Ishmaelite races or the Midianite races or the other Abrahamic races. We've gone through this so many times. I hope that if we do it enough that you'll be able to think your way through it. And then within the nation of Israel itself. Among the Jews, there was one tribe that was designated to have the scepter, to have the dominion, and that being the tribe of Judah. I, I do find it quite remarkable, though, that even though the Christ was promised to one tribe, the nation as a whole of, of the Jewish people continued to have Jewish expectations with respect to their coming Christ, and not necessarily... Uh, Judaic expectations for the coming Christ. In other words, the other 11 tribes really glommed on to some of these promises and exalted it as a, as a racial feature that the Messiah was going to be Jewish. You see what I'm saying? And not going to that next step where the tribe of Judah is going to be the ruling tribe within the within the, uh, the the nation of Israel. See, particularly when we get into intertestamental studies, the uh, rulership of Israel during the life of Christ vested in the Sanhedrin, which was anything but Judaic. The Sanhedrin was primarily priestly, primarily Levitical. Uh, the uh, Pharisees that arose to prominence could come from any sort of particular tribe, for example. Benjamin was where Saul of Tarsus arose from, and, and all the rest. So there was no Judaic emphasis on the uh, the rulership of Israel. 
And, uh, and then even within the tribe of Judah, there was a further distinction. Recall that? That was a son of David. We're not looking for any other descendant of Judah, but we're looking for a descendant of David. And so there are Davidic expectations. And, and I think um, those, by and large, were overlooked as well, that the, the title Son of David, which believers would in, in the Gospels would be very quick to address Christ as Son of David. You know, the blind would say, Son of David, have mercy, or the... Those in need of healing would say son of David, and they would identify with that as being his title. Um, I still think that the primary thinking in the realm of unbelieving Jews was one of racial superiority, was one of dominance, was one of let's throw off the bonds of Rome, let's set up our own king, and let's rule the world. And um, quite, uh, quite interesting. So as it bears to this message, the angel does not say today... In the city of David, there has been born to you a Messiah. And, and as a matter of fact, this whole concept of birth and humility and, and uh, the babe in the manger is, is not what they were really jazzed up about. They wanted a king. They wanted a, a conqueror. They wanted uh, for the uh, uh, Savior to come marching in and all of the second advent prophecies. They were really excited about those because those had you know bloodshed and victory and conquest and glory and all of that. So, as we focus on the specific message, the introduction says simply, do not be afraid, or literally stop being afraid. May, plus the present uh, imperative here, may fabesta, stop being afraid. And explanation being, I bring you good news. I'm not here to destroy you. There's other reasons why an angel might appear, uh, and quite destructive reasons <laughs> might, uh, might be there when an angel appears. He's not here for destruction, he's here for communication, and his message is a message of good news. Um, two explanatory reasons for do not be afraid are, I bring you good news. Literally, I am evangelizing you. Stop being afraid, I am evangelizing you. I am not destroying you, I am evangelizing you. For he says, you angelizamai humin, I am evangelizing you. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. There's a big clue. <laughs> not just for the Jewish people, not just for your race, not just for your people, but for all the people. The entire human race has reason to celebrate because the seed of the woman promise that was first given to Eve on the day that they were driven out of the garden is now being fulfilled that the seed of the woman is has indeed been born. Not just Jewish people in terms of Jewish expectations. The explanation, we've had the introduction, do not be afraid, and now we have the message itself. Today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, a Soter, number 4990. A Savior has been born, that the need of the human race since Adam and Eve fell in the garden, the need has been for a Savior, not a Messiah. A savior. The Messiah is an anointed one. The Mashiach, anointed one. From the Hebrew, Mashach, to anoint. Same thing with Christ. A Christos is an anointed one. Comes from the Greek, Creo, to anoint, to smear with oil. As such, uh, prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, kings were anointed. The anointing designates the holiness. The uh, sanctification being set apart, called as holy, called for a holy purpose. Whether that being a holy prophet, a holy priest, a holy king, or a holy prophet, priest, and king, such as Jesus Christ, who uh, occupied all three offices. A holy temple. That's why temples were anointed. A holy altar. Why altars were anointed. A holy sacrifice. Why offerings, in some cases, were anointed. The idea of holiness is caught up in the uh, concept of anointing and the concept of the Christ. But God did not promise a Christ. He promised a Savior when he promised that the human race would be redeemed, that the sin problem would be dealt with, that man being fallen was in need of redemption, was in need of salvation. So the issue is not one of messiology, the study of the Messiah, but the issue is one of soteriology or salvation, the need for a Savior. It's what we call soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior. Then, further explanation. Who is Christ the Lord? All right. Two amplifications to Savior in these subdescriptions. 
All right? There has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Okay? It doesn't say there has been born to you a a Christ who is the Lord your Savior. All right? And I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here with this because you can phrase this in every way. You can say, there has been born to you a Christ or a Messiah who is the Lord your Savior. Grammatically, you can say that. You can say that in any language. All right? Hebrew, Greek, English. That's not what the verse says. It could also say, there has been born to you um, the Lord who is Christ your Savior. Okay, three terms, but one is given as primary, and then the other two amplify the description. And I hope we understand that the angelic message is, there has been born to you a Savior, a Soter. The primary emphasis being the redemption work, which was his purpose for first advent. Now, you and I can understand that better, I think, than the shepherds could on the day that they first were given this. Because shepherds were looking ahead to the coming Messiah. They were looking ahead to the coming Christ. They were looking ahead to the coming Savior. They were looking ahead to all three. And they had no way to know that they were going to look that they were looking ahead at two different events. Again, there's that prophetic depth perception that was working against them and in our favor. Because we are positioned in between the two advents. All right, and we can look back to see past completed action with the 2020 hindsight. Okay, the 2020 prophetic hindsight. We can look back to first advent, and we can see, you know, all the Old Testament scriptures and their fulfillments, and say, hey, that's a pretty neat thing. We can also look forward to second advent prophecies, understanding quite clearly that they're yet unfulfilled. All right, and we have our own ideas with respect to how they will be fulfilled. But again, we're not as, we don't have that hindsight. It's not till the millennium where we're really going to be able to look back to second advent the way you and I can look back to first advent today. It's not really until the millennium when we can look back with that 2020 prophetic hindsight and see all of the prophecies and all of their fulfillments. Right now, all we see are prophecies. And we have ideas about how they will be fulfilled. But we don't have the total picture, and we can't until they're done. And then we can see how faithful our Father truly is. So now these angels are looking forward. I'm sorry, these shepherds are looking forward. And the angel is making this announcement. And they see a Savior, a Christ, and and the Lord himself. The Lord himself who is here to accomplish what man cannot do. The validating sign or the evidence is supplied to them. A baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now the question was asked, how come the word swaddling isn't in here? <laughs> and is that a King James thing? Is that, uh, is that an explanation? Is, is, is the word swaddling in the Greek? Well, that's the tricky part because there's, there's really no noun here. It's just a wrapped baby. And so you're left to supply. Well, what's he wrapped with? And the, and the verb that's employed here is that, it, is that it's a standard word for, for wrapped. And it's assumed that he's wrapped with a cloth that, because that was the practice. A wrapped baby. All right. Could be wrapped with newspapers. <laughs> that's not likely. Could be wrapped with, uh, you know, anything you, you could wrap with. Wrapped with uh, Christmas wrapping paper. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Wouldn't that be appropriate, wouldn't it? No. Wrapped with swaddling clothes. Okay. Wrapped with baby wrappings. Wrapped with a baby blanket. The, the, the key is he's a newborn and he's wrapped as a newborn. The practice of the day. So, not the issue that he's wrapped, because any newborn's going to be wrapped, whether he's in a manger or he's in a home or he's in the hospital or wherever he might be. Uh, the issue is that he's going to be in the manger where you would not expect to find a rat baby. And that's the sign. And so they go into Bethlehem and they look and we're going to see that here momentarily. And everything is just like they were told. This baby is in a manger. What in the world is he doing in a manger? Okay. So the validating sign, the evidence. And by going in and immediately having that validation um, established, then... The credibility is there for everything else the angels said. They, they have no reason to doubt anything with respect to the Christ, the Savior, the, the Lord, because the, the validating sign was so immediately 
fulfilled. That's why quite often we have short-term, long-term prophecies with messages that the Lord delivers. Now, under point four, we examine the angelic chorus. Glory in the highest places to God, and upon earth, peace among men of good will. Verse 14. It's introduced with verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Not the entire heavenly host, because the number of the angels is, of course, impossible to estimate. And one third of the entire of the heavenly host would not be praising here anyway. Because one-third of the entire multitude is, in fact, in open rebellion, having followed Satan in his uh, rejection of the Father's plan. But there is a multitude, that is a group, a large group, of the heavenly host that uh, became suddenly, visibly manifest in verse 13. They have been around already because glory was shining in verse 9. But their visibility, the the capacity of the human shepherds with their human sight to observe them was not granted until verse 14. And there's two ways of looking at this. Either the shepherds' eyes were somehow opened and we find that phrase in the Old Testament and New Testament alike, where your eyes were opened and they were given the capacity to observe the spiritual realm. Or, the change actually occurred in the angels themselves, where they were then manifest in the visible light spectrum, as we understand light today in our modern understanding of physics. That they were visibly manifest within the what shall we say, the, the visible spectrum of the, or the visible re, uh, portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, we might say. They are beings of light. And we understand light, I think, more than uh, any other generation of the human race. And yet, the more we study it, the more we realize, you know, we, we don't know a whole lot about light. <laughs> we continue to study light. There are entire doctorates given over to studying light. They have proven now that the speed of light is, in fact, slowing down. And that's causing all kinds of tremors among the, um, the uniformitarian scientists that want to believe that everything's the way it's always been. And it's always been this way for billions of years. But light is slowing down. And we're trying to understand light. Angels are, in fact, beings of light. The fallen angels have to disguise themselves as angels of light. So, whatever the case is here, either the shepherds had their eyes opened and their eyes aren't mentioned here, or the angels were then permitted to enter into the, into the visible spectrum, and I believe that to be the case, because the primary verb is manifest or appeared, and the subject of this are the angels. But suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying. Praising God is their primary activity and saying is the content of that praise. Glory to, the God, to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. You can either render this with whom he is pleased or men of good pleasure. Either way it communicates the fact that that we are pleasing to him, and the only way to be pleasing to him is by virtue of what he's done. So however you render it in the English, I think the content is still the same. So here's the, the angel chorus. Glory in the highest places to God, and upon earth peace among men of good will or men of good pleasure. This song serves to amplify the song Isaiah witnessed. And we're going to look at this. In fact, we're going to spend some time this morning on angel songs and why it is that angels sing and the privilege and blessing we have to sing, the opportunity we have to celebrate. And I think this is going to dovetail real well with 1 Corinthians when we examine the nature of the church as a body celebrating the Passover. Not the Old Testament ritual, but the church age reality of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, or to celebrate him daily. And all too often, we get so weighed down with angelic conflict, all too often we get so focused on struggles that we forget celebration. And if all we are are struggles and not celebration, then I think we are missing out on the abundant Christian way of life, that we are to have life and have it in abundance, that we are to have the... the uh, 
recognition of the glory that's truly there. We are glorified in Christ, even though we don't tend to live that way, I think, a lot of the time. So, this song does serve to amplify the song Isaiah Witness in Isaiah 6.3, and we will look at that as a part of our overall survey, and then we will um, deal with uh, some of these other issues as well. So, let's look at this, and it's not going to appear too well this morning. Um, we are currently discussing, at least some of us, <laughs> with the deacons, um, a, a possibility of actually buying a new projector that has a better light output than what we presently have here. Hoping to do two things, hoping to increase the light output and also hoping to increase the resolution of what we're looking at. This is limited to 800 by 600, the what's called SVGA resolution. And so the words are going to be smaller, and of course the brightness, there's nothing we can do about the brightness. Uh, we can make words bigger, but it just means that the most we can look at is about one verse per, uh, per screen. And you still probably won't really be looking at them very well from the back row or more than about the first two or three rows back. But suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, and if you could read that or not, um, real advantage of being able to utilize a software application for doing studies such as this, for example, is that you can have the two windows side by side, the English text and the, and the Greek text in, in, in linked windows, and when you scroll one, the other scrolls along with it. Um, other advantages are the opportunity to um, rapidly turn from verse to verse to verse and, and collect a, a group of verses in very short order. And that's one of the things that I've done here. Um, one of the resources that I enjoy using very much is Tori's Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that resource or not. It is available in print form as well as in computer form. Um, but when you open up Tori, in fact, I use it so often, I've got an icon on my toolbar that opens it up. And... Uh, It's like the cross-references that are in the uh, margin of your Bible, uh, only expanded many, many times over, um, almost to the point of overkill, but that's a good thing because uh, you can never have too many, too many verses to look at. And uh, so, as I put this up, and then we can just tile them either way, um, You can turn in Tory, for example, to Luke 2 and verse 13 with respect to a multitude of heavenly hosts. And we have an entire string of references that addresses the, the term multitude, that addresses heavenly host. And we find uh, the singing that then occurs in verse 14 with glory to God in the highest. And uh, there are other cross-references that apply to those verses as well. Now, the disadvantage if, you're, if you have your paper Bible out, and then you put your Greek Bible out if you're looking at that, and you put your Tory out. Now you got three Bibles on your on your desk, and you're flipping pages and doing all that. Software saves you all of that flipping and all of the all of the issues there. And so you have the opportunity to go through here and to examine these passages very quickly, just simply by clicking on the reference that's there. And it just sent me to Genesis 28:12, and uh, this is Jacob with a ladder. He's on the dream. He's having a dream. He's on his way to, to Paddan Aram. He's fleeing from his brother. I think you're familiar with Genesis 28. And he has this dream, and there's a ladder set in the heavens, and he sees the uh, multitude of the heavenly hosts, the angels of God, it says, were ascending and descending on it. And so this is one of the links that, uh, that Tori sent me to, the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge sent me to, in, in the context of the multitude of the heavenly hosts. You'll also notice that the Greek Bible switched over to the Hebrew Bible in the process of doing that. Then it went from the Nestle 27 Greek text to the, to the uh, Biblia Hebraica Studargensia. And so instead of putting my Greek Bible back on the shelf and pulling out my Hebrew Bible, the, uh, the window did that there for me and turned to Genesis 28.12 in the process. Um, it also has us look at Genesis 32.1 with uh, Machanayim as he's coming back into Canaan where he wrestles with the angel of the Lord till daybreak. Um, it also sends me to 1 Kings 22.19, which is a remarkable passage, dealing with the host of heaven, dealing with the angels. 
Um, Micaiah, an otherwise unknown prophet to us, he does not have his own prophetic book, but he appears in 1 Kings 22, said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. This is interesting because we see the entire host. The entire host. Every Member of the host is here because it is all the host of heaven, the entire heavenly host. Now, host is an army, and so the question then is asked, are there spirit beings that are not soldiers, that are not a part of the army, would not therefore be considered a part of the host? You know, non-host angels, we might say, non-soldier angels, and that opens up questions there. But they are there, and they are divided right and left, which is interesting. We understand them to be elect angels, fallen angels. We understand that this is quite like the uh, sheep and goat judgment divided left and right when the Lord returns. And uh, the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. In other words, he has a work assignment and he offers it. It's like a job posting. (laughs) He has a work assignment to entice Ahab. And then there's a general debate among the host of heaven. Presumably on the elect side and the fallen side, left and right. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. I think the best rendering of angelology is actually spiritology, to refer to them as spirits, because they're not all angels. An angelos is a messenger. The malak in the Hebrew is a messenger. What we think of as angels are simply the lowest messenger levels of the spirit beings that include cherubim, seraphim, uh, include judgment spirit beings and all the rest but I can't overthrow 2,000 years of or at least 500 years of English tradition I'm going to be stuck by calling them angels probably for the rest of my life but angels are the messengers of the spirit being realm but a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said I will entice him and Jehovah the Lord said to him how and he said I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. All right. This is quite similar to Satan when he was requesting permission to go afflict Job. Here is a a, a fallen spirit, a, a fallen angel that is volunteering to empower the false prophets of Israel. To, uh, to deliver deceitful lying messages. And so this passage gives us quite an interesting view of what the host of heaven is all about and how they assemble in conference and how the Lord ministers, how the Lord rules, what the, uh, what the uh, day-to-day operations of the angelic realm before the Father's throne is, is all about. It's an interesting passage. And you find it in 1 Kings 22.19. And we got there because of the treasury of scripture knowledge and the opportunity to look up these cross-references in very quick order. Second uh, Chronicles 18.18 is a parallel passage to the First Kings 22 account. We also have Job 38.7. We'll be dealing with that shortly when we look at the angels singing because it's a singing passage. With the creation of the world and the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So we'll focus on that. Psalm uh, 68.17 The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. One of the few references we have to angels being present on Mount Sinai. We know that there were flames. We know that there was fear and thunder. We know that the people were terrified and said, Moses, go up there and talk to God. Come back here and tell us when you're all done. (laughs) All right. But beyond wind and fear and thunder and lightning, that uh, it was actually angels. His angels are winds, are ministers of wind and fire and all the rest. Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. There's an asterisk by it which tells us that uh, not only is this a cross-reference here, but if we go to that passage in Tori, if we go to that passage in the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge, mainly Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21, we will find even more cross-references that pertain to the heavenly host, that pertain to the... Uh, the work of angels before the Father's throne. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, observing the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. See, when all we do is focus on the earth and what he's doing among the human realm, we're losing track of the total picture of what God the Father is truly doing for the ultimate glory of Jesus Christ.
All right, we also have Psalm 148, verse 2. We have uh, Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3. We're going to be in these passages here shortly. Ezekiel 3.12. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in, in his place. Ezekiel catches a part of the angelic singing as he's caught into the angelic world. Daniel 7.10. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Daniel gets to observe a part of the angelic judgment. It's, uh, it's interesting, the thousands upon thousands and myriads upon myriads, the, uh, the sheer numbers of angelic beings is extraordinary. And uh, when Christ said, what are you talking about? Don't you know I can just... Snap my fingers. I can ask of the Father and immediately I'll be given these angels, I mean these legions of angels to defend me. <laughs> you know, there's Peter with a sword trying to, trying to conquer the whole Roman Empire all by himself or something, you know. <laughs> and the Lord says, that's not why we're here. That's not why we're here. Luke 15.10 There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'm getting ahead of myself because that's the verse we're going to look at in a moment when we look at angels singing. A sinner who repents. Now that could be an unbeliever who comes to salvation or that could be a carnal believer who finally wakes up and comes to his senses. In both circumstances there is joy in heaven in the presence of the angels. Over one, the angels of God, not the fallen angels, of course, but over the elect angels, the angels of God, over one sinner who has metanoeo, has a change of thinking. Ephesians 3.10, that we are on display. The wisdom of God is now made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I've emphasized this before in our first Corinthians study and other studies. We are on display. We are an exhibit in the Father's unfolding argument in the resolution of the angelic conflict. The church is the closing argument when it comes right down to it because he's going to rapture the church and he's going to hand the kingdom over to Satan with all restraint lifted and say, all right, you've had all my arguments. Now uh, now work your plan out. Never Sarah work his plan out for seven years. All right? The church, the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The role of the church as an exhibit to the angels is something that I hope we think about and I hope we consider in our daily life that we are on display as, a, as an exhibit of God's manifold, manifold wisdom. And then several others there. Hebrews 1.14, 1 Peter 1.12, Revelation 5.11 and 12. So many things there. But anyway, I'm just simply running through this exercise for you. And it might have been a waste of time if you can't read any of those words. <laughs> but showing you again the... And this is the kind of thing I hope to do more of if, like I say, we get a better projector and the opportunity to, uh, to do some of these studies here live. Let's go through... I'm going to close Tori out for the moment. And uh, I'm going to go back to our starting verse in Luke 2.13. I mistyped it. <laughs> I tried Luke 2, 134, and smart enough to know there is no verse 134. So it just sends me to the end of the chapter and says, is this what you were trying for? <laughs> All right, Luke 2, 13. Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, and I attached a note to this. And so we'll just bring that up. Tile them once again. I created just a little note file here on angel songs and the first one of these references is here in Luke chapter 2 now notice the angel song is focused on glory the angel song is focused on glory all too often you and I are not focused on glory and our purpose to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in fact, entire realms of theology are not focused on glory. If you ever break down the distinction between covenant theology and dispensational theology, for example, covenant theology views the centerpiece of God's plan as redemption. 
dispensational theology views the centerpiece of God's plan as glory. Ultimately, the glorification of the Father through the Son in his work of obedience. It's the glorification of God. Redemption's a part of that. Does redemption glorify God? Certainly. But so does creation. Glorifies God. Every aspect of God's plan glorifies God. The creation of the angels and the God's plan for the angels is for his glory. God's plan for man is for his glory. Redemption, certainly, glorifies God. But all things, remember, are created through him and for him. The ultimate purpose clause of everything is, is God. Specifically, God has chosen Jesus Christ, God the Son, to be the celebrity of the universe. And so it's interesting that we find a Savior is being introduced, but the uh, expression of thankfulness with respect to that is oriented towards glory. Glory to God in the highest. And I think if we start to focus on glory, glorifying God in what we do, glorifying God in what we say, glorifying God in what we think, that we will be much closer to truly being the fellow workers that he calls us. He calls us his fellow workers. So if we're his fellow workers, I think we should start to understand what he's doing. <laughs> you know, if you're somebody's business partner and you don't have a clue what kind of work he's doing, what kind of business partner are you? You know? You should know what he's doing if you're his partner. You should be working towards the same goal, the same objectives, the same activities. We're his fellow workers. And he is exalting Jesus Christ for all eternity. What we're ultimately heading for is that dispensation of the fullness of times. The summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heaven and things on the earth. Following the point of time when there's no longer a things under the earth. The new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the millennium. We're looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. The summing up of all things in Christ. We're here to glorify God. And that's what this song is dealing with. Glory to God in the highest. Now there's all sorts of realms, of course. We tend to break down the, the uh, Paul even called it the third heaven. He was caught up to be in the third heaven. And so we, uh, we accept that as, as inspired scripture. There's all kinds of other apocryphal works out there, Jewish traditions and things that talk about seven heavens and all of that. But Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. And Paul makes no mention of the seventh heaven and any of that. That's not biblical. It's just apocrypha and tradition and all the rest. But whatever the case, the Father's throne is the highest. The Father's throne is in the highest. It is the pinnacle. It is the closest uh, approach to the Father in glory. But he has glory not only on in heaven, but also on earth, where presently a lot of rebellion is taking place. But on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The more we study angelology, the more we start to see the interaction between things in heaven and things on earth. We start dealing with binding and loosing in heaven and on earth. We start uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, with thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We start to see that interaction between the human realm and the angelic realm, both of which are geared to the glory of God the Father. And so here is the angel's song of praise. And it is not only in the heavens, where it's always been, but now God himself is on the earth in this human form, in this helpless human form, in this little seven pound, seven ounce, you know, we don't know how much he weighed, but I was seven, seven. So, you know, I like to think Jesus maybe was... (laughs) we don't know he could have been a hefty 10 pounder or whatever we don't know but whatever he was wrapped in those swaddling clothes all right he was helpless he voluntarily emptied himself he laid aside his privileges of deity he entered into the womb of mary he was born into this world in this little body that needed to be fed, needed to be burped, needed to be changed, needed to be rocked, needed to be everything. And uh, the more I ponder this, the more unbelievable it, it just uh, appears. Things in which angels long to look is really an accurate description. All right, other passages where we have angels singing. One of my favorite to go to is the passage on creation from Job 38. 
Job 38.7. Now, this is a part of Job's rebuke. All right? And when the Lord is rebuking Job, and he says in verse 1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Okay? In the previous chapters, down through the end of chapter 37, we had the words of, of Elihu, but now we have... God speaking to Job in chapter 38. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The more we understand the heavenly realm, the host of heaven and all the rest, it's often referred to as the divine counsel. That the Father rules, obviously, in heaven. That the angel of the Lord is, the, is his regent on the throne. And that all the heavenly hosts are assembled before him. Those that are voluntarily serving him and even those that are in rebellion still have an audience that are still entitled to approach and, and petition and complain and moan and <laughs> the things there where Satan goes and he gripes about the hedge being too high around Job. Okay, They still have access to the judicial court until such time as the Father evicts them, I believe, when that trumpet is blown of the rapture of the church. I believe all fallen angels are at that point evicted from their, their heavenly access being revoked as the Son brings his bride to the Father's glory. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? The Father is in counsel. Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Since you know so much, Job, go ahead and gird up your loins. I'll have a seat. You're the teacher. I will ask you and you instruct me. Since you know so much, you obviously have knowledge that transcends God's omnipotence, then teach me what you know from your vast wisdom here, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding or since you have understanding. You must have been there, Mr. Know-it-all. Who set its measurements since you know, Mr. Know-it-all? Are you following the sarcasm here? It's literally dripping with the sarcasm. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? That's an interesting conversation there too. Who stretched the line on it? And um, Larkin believed that... Um, this was the line was a plumb line that was dropped through the, the center of the top of this structure. Now, this is a structure being described here. God is describing his creation of the earth, but he's doing so in description of another structure uh, with finite measurements and with a plumb line that hangs vertically. Who stretched or who hung or who dropped the line on it? On what were its bases, plural, bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And you can say cornerstone or you could say capstone. And you have plural bases, but you have single capstone or single cornerstone. Okay? And this is a fascinating passage for tons of reasons. And Larkin can't prove his case, but Larkin makes a very excellent case that the building God's describing here is a pyramid. That the building God's describing here is a massive structure that any architect would be proud of that has a plumb line that's hung that has plural bases and that has a capstone. And the capstone is the final piece of the puzzle. So instead of thinking of cornerstone as a foundation, it's one of the first things that goes in and everything else goes on top. This is describing something that has that line that's hanging and the capstone that's the final piece. And then once the capstone's in place, we throw the party and we celebrate and break out the, the beverages and just, you know, anyway. So this was this rebuke on Job was what led Larkin, Larkin to uh, put forth his theory that, um, <laughs> that Job was, in fact, the builder of the, of the Great Pyramid. That uh, the, the shepherd king from the east that came that uh, ruled over Egypt and that built this pyramid. So, anyway, that's Larkin's theory. He can't prove it, but the language of this passage is extraordinary. All right. Coming back to the real point, though, <laughs> is God is rebuking Job. And whether he's talking about a pyramid here or he's talking about another earthly building that, that Job was proud of himself for building, 
the, the, the fact is that God is saying, by the way, I made the earth. <laughs> you might have made a real impressive building that you're dazzled with, and you may think you're this great architect and engineer, but I made the earth. And were you there when I did that? And do you know all these things? Okay. So back to describing the earth and its creation. He says, uh, who set its measurements, who stretched the line, on what words base is sunk, who laid its cornerstone. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's verse 7. Okay. And this passage becomes very extraordinary for lots of different studies, not the least of which is angelology, but also creation itself. Is that angelic beings were witnesses to the creation of the earth. We have two groups, morning stars, and uh, which appear in singing and praise contexts when they do appear. The adversary was called a morning star on an occasion, and uh, Christ is called the morning star. It's one of his titles of glory. It appears to be a division of an angelic chorus. And then all the sons of God shouted for joy. All the sons of God shouted for joy. So these terms, morning star, sons of God, host of heaven, uh, cherubim, seraphim, all of these really get incorporated into a, a very developed angelology beyond anything we're going to tackle today. What we're focusing on today is singing. Okay, Angels sang when Jesus Christ was born, and that's significant. Angels sang when the earth was created. We only have a handful of places where we have the angel songs actually recorded. And in these very few locations, the events are, are significant. They are extraordinary. So, we have angels witnessing the creation of the earth. And that, uh, beyond anything I'm going to take you into today, is something to consider when you consider, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, when did he make the angels? <laughs> All right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But now, wait a second. Job 38.7 says that angels were on hand, at least morning stars and sons of God, which I believe represents all of the angelic. Sons of God identifies all the angelic realm. All right. So all the spirit beings that were existed, were existed, they're called sons of God. Morning stars represents their choir. All right. They were there to see the earth created. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a lot more to that verse than I think a lot of people pay attention to. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the universe, all the galaxies, the invisible realm, the host of heaven, they're called, the spirit realm, to indwell and inhabit this, this uh, physical space of the heavens. But something was missing. Everything was in place except the earth. Something was missing. It's kind of like when he created in Genesis 1 and 2 and he creates the earth for human habitation and he creates sea animals and birds and crawling creepy things and animals and man in a garden and he puts the man to work and Adam names all the animals and he gets busy working and he starts to recognize, you know, something's missing here. It's not good for the man to be alone. And God said, okay, you're right. And he made woman. So the idea of creating and leaving something out is, uh, is consistent with what God, the, the way God operates and the way God unfolds his plan. And so just imagine the entire created universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens. All right. He created the heavens. Hashemayim. And... Who were the residents of the heavens? Well, we know who they're called. The host of the heavens. The heavenly host. And the earth. They gathered around. They observed. They witnessed. They rejoiced. They worshipped. This was something. This world was unique. Absolutely unique. It didn't, uh, didn't have a bunch of fancy rings around it like Saturn, you know. Didn't have a whole lot of moons like Jupiter. 24 moons or so around Jupiter. You know, we're kind of cheated, aren't we? We just have that one stupid moon and it's, you know, <laughs> you know, kind of an ugly place. Bunch of rocks and nothing else there. All right. 
So we didn't have rings, and we didn't have a whole bunch of moons, and we didn't have, we're not a great big ball of gas, you know, like Jupiter, and we're not, you know. It's unique. It's unique. It's a place that he has chosen to dwell. It's a place that's fit for plant and animal and human, terrestrial, what we call terrestrial life. It's unique. And the angels looked at this and said, there's nothing else like this in the universe. Okay? So the evolutionist hates that. <laughs> and they, they, they don't want to admit that, that we're unique, and that there's anything different about the earth, and it's just random chance that we just happen to be, you know, conditions are there to support human life. But, you know, there's, there's an infinite number of galaxies, and out there there's got to be another planet somewhere that can support life that, well, okay. Only an evolutionist could believe that. But God made this world for his purpose. And first of all, he made it for angelic purposes. And the angels dwelt there. And he planted a garden there. And the, and the stones of fire were established there. And a temple was established there. And Satan was anointed, called the anointed cherub. And there were multiple sanctuaries in that temple. And then that world was destroyed. That's why the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. So, this verse, as well as different places in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and elsewhere, Psalms, help us to understand what is really happening in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. But notice singing. The location of the earth is a location for singing. The conditions of the earth are conditions for singing. Where else do we have angelic singing? Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21, we saw a moment ago. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. The whole idea of blessing versus cursing is a remarkable study. Because you and I have that opportunity. We have the potential. He's given us the volitional capacity and the verbal capacity. We can bless and we can curse. And as the book of James says, that's why the tongue is such a dangerous thing. Because with the same tongue, we can do both <laughs> you know, with the same tongue, we can bless the Lord. We can sing his praises. We can testify of his glory. And with the same tongue, we can curse his name. We can say some of the most vile slander, the most uh, insidious gossip, the most hurtful things we can say with our tongue. The capacity as part of being made in the image of God, not only volitional capacity, but verbal capacity, the capacity to speak. I might anger the animal wackos out there. I understand dogs bark, cats meow, whales sing, or they make those sounds that we think sound like singing. Okay, Birds sing, or they make the little chirps that we say sounds like singing. Okay, Animals communicate. They communicate to one another. They communicate to other animals, different animals, same animals. You know, They communicate basic things like you know, I want to eat you. <laughs> Go away. I'm afraid of you. Run. There's danger. Um, let's make babies. Okay. Animals can communicate on a basic animal level, but they do not have the verbal capacity to bless and to curse. They cannot communicate to themselves, to us, that God the Father created, sent His Son to die that we might have eternal life. Angels can't, uh, animals can't say that. Dolphins can't say that. Flipper might have been real smart, but he cannot give the gospel to this lost and dying world. Okay? The potential for verbal communication is part of being um, the, the blessings of what God has given us. And so it has, uh, along with the potential for good, it has that danger, that snare. We can serve the slanderer. Ha diabolos, the slanderer, through slander. Through... Harmful communication. So, the opportunity to bless. To bless. Now, when God blesses, He is declaring blessings, and it's, and it's so. It happens. When God says, let there be light, there's light. When God says, when God, for example, uh, provides the blessing of children, it says the fruit of the womb is a reward. And so when God opens the womb, you realize that? God opens the womb and He closes the womb. Don't get confused by biology class, <laughs> okay? Where the people in this world think they know what causes pregnancy. 
God opens the womb. He closes the womb. The fruit of the womb is a reward. It's a blessing. And when God says so, it happens. Now, you and I don't have that kind of sovereignty through declaration. I can't say, let there be coffee <laughs> and have a cup of coffee just appear in my hand. All right, it'd be nice, but I don't have that. I can't just declare blessings upon you. I can say bless you, right? Which nowadays we only do for sneezes and coughs. Why is that? We have the privilege of pronouncing blessing. And it's not just a, uh, an idiom. It's not just a figure of speech. So when we do it, we're not declaring their existence, but we are actually, it's a prayer request. When you and I pronounce blessings, we are actually asking the Father, beseeching the Father to bless a person, a marriage, a house, a baby, for example. I think we've got some dedications coming up. We've had a, a lot of babies this spring and summer, and, and when we bring the babies up front with their parents, then we, we ask for the Lord's blessing. We ask for guidance and wisdom to the parents to train up a godly seed. We ask for um, uh, the Lord's blessing in their spiritual life and provision for, to, to raise up this child and to, to lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And, and we ask for blessings. Now, that's our opportunity to do so through prayer when we give a blessing. Also, giving a blessing to the Lord. How do I give a blessing to the Lord? What does he have, or what does he not have that I can give him? <laughs> you know? What does he not have that I can give him? Well, as we saw Sunday morning, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. I can give him the praise of my own volition, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Let us continually offer up the praise to God. Okay? The fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. What I can do free will, I can do volitionally. Not reciting a formula, but composing from my own soul an expression of thanksgiving. Composing my own description of, of glory with words that I choose to use. This is what I can offer him in terms of blessing. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, observing the voice of his word. I'm sorry, obeying the voice of his word. Now the fallen angels that are not obeying the voice of his word. They're not performing his word. They're not in a position to bless the Lord. And so this is a call to worship for the elect angels. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him doing his will. There again, elect angels. The fallen angels are not doing his will. They are doing Satan's will or their own will. And uh, the things that are involved there. I am out of time already. I went ahead and went five minutes over since uh, we started five minutes late. We also have Psalm 148, verse 2. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. So I think that those are the messengers. Those are the warriors. And this is a part of praise the Lord. Praise him from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his messengers. Praise him, all his warriors. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Well, we'll come back to this next Wednesday. I want to see the throne room scene that Isaiah saw, where he saw the seraphim and they were crying, holy, holy, holy. And uh, Isaiah figured that he was had no business being there. <laughs> he said, I'm a wretched sinner. What am I doing here? And... Um, I want to focus on that, and then we'll see other reasons for the angels singing, as we already saw in Luke 15, when a sinner repents. Angels celebrate. They observe creation and celebrated. They observe the birth of Christ and celebrated. And they observe believers, and they celebrate based upon our activity. And uh, we'll look at that as well. And then we'll wrap up with the final songs that are sung in Revelation. Chapter 4, 5, 7, and 19 all have angelic singing throughout the book of Revelation. So we'll spend some time on that as well. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. And Father, angelic singing is something that we only have glimpses of. And yet we realize in the events where these things occur that they are significant events in the unfolding of your plan for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We pray that we might have our eyes open to see a much larger picture than just 
um, the human realm of existence than just our, our daily life, but open our eyes to see the grace eternal plan of the ages for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ and give us a much wider perspective to observe your working, to understand our role as your fellow workers, to understand the awesome responsibility that the dispensation of the church has as the manifest evidence of your of your wisdom to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Father, help us to understand where our citizenship is. It's not on this earth, but it's in heaven. Help us to understand where our home is. It's not on this earth, but our Savior has gone to prepare for us a home in the many dwelling places that are in your home. And we just thank you for these promises. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that we can lay up our treasures in heaven. Father, what opportunities that are there. So open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding. Let them be enlightened. Let us know the hope of our calling. What are the riches of our inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing power that is directed towards us who believe? And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.